stuck in my head all weekend so I watched a stupid movie. Yeah. Something like that. More movies need uh, the protagonist singing a theme song throughout. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. To intimidate your foes, you sing the song about how you're the sad and lonely, lonely drifter. Makes yeah. every movie oh, immensely man. better. I'm, d- I'm just thinking about Omar Little with yeah. Whistling the Farmer in the Dell. Yeah. And that works, man. Yeah. I just think, well, Logan, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if, if Wolverine and you, Hugh Jackman's just breaking into song every 20 <laughs> minutes yeah. as he slaughters some Snickety guys with his hooks. some dudes. <laughs> yeah. Before, I mean, uh, Mad like, Max Fury Road was close. You know, we had music. We just need yeah. some lyrics. Yeah. yeah think about true. that fire guitar guy just singing about uh, Morton Joe. Yeah. <laughs> how much he loves Morton Joe. Yeah. Worshipping Morton Joe. And yeah. How Aqua Cola is the best. Yeah. Yeah. The Doof Warrior did need lyrics. That's, that's my one. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Miller. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Drive. Although it didn't work well for cats, so Uh, I don't know. Well, that's a musical with bad music. So and bad cats, and it's also about cats, which is you know another another strike yet against it. Um, we are going to talk about the movies you never discussed in film, of course, unless you happen to tune in during the month of January, in which we do our little anti-trash marathon every year. Ten years now, I guess eleven times, ten times. I think this uh, is the tip. Yeah, because we didn't do it the first. We didn't. Yeah, because yeah, we started in years. September, and uh, we had a year off maybe before we got it yeah. figured out. I don't know math, but a lot of these we've done yeah, a lot of it's, these. It's our second longest recurring marathon after Shocktober. After yeah. the Shocktober Halloween one, so yeah. we've been doing this a long time. So in January we do anti-trash movies. We're, we're doing currently anti-trash crime film marathon. Uh, we did it breathless last week. This week we're doing. Um, Tokyo Drifter, directed by... I've died, lost... Sashin Suzuki? Uh, that's that, it, Suzuki, yeah. Is that it? Yeah, yeah Suzuki is the name. The name, yeah. Um, and so, we're going to be talking about that movie. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton. And we are so glad to be talking to you about this movie. Now, to warn you, dear listener, that this is an analysis show, not a review show. Uh, we will have a little bit of review at the front part of the show, but, but we do this um, to warn you that there will be spoilers of the film. And so, uh, this is how the show is going to break down, so you know just how deep into spoiler territory you've gotten as you get deeper and deeper into the program. First of all, we do a synopsis, which will be like what you on IMDb. What's this movie about? Uh, which will not be a spoiler other than it's going to tell you what the movie's about. Uh, then we'll do a review, which which we'll do a review, which tells you a little bit of what happens in the movie, not like the big thematic character or plot arcs. We'll just kind of give you shape stuff as to what we think of the experience of watching the film. Then we move on to a little exercise called Expanding the Syllabus, wherein we might spoil this film uh, by talking about other films it's like. And that might give you some clues if you're an eagle-eared listener uh, for that. Then we move on to the analysis part of the show. We'll get down to business and do that. And there'll be music that says we have yet now gotten down to business. And so you'll be warned. And therefore, all spoiler bets are off. And we'll spoil this 60-year-old movie that's 82 minutes. You catch up with it very quickly. Yeah, it won't take you long. So there you go, dear listener. You have been warned. Arthur, delight us with yet another synopsis, please. A hitman looking to go straight lets out on his own before old vendettas come calling after him. I keep trying to get out, Fredo, and they keep pulling me back in. So many movies. <laughs> you could have described so many movies. Just no, holy shit. But it's, this it's, is it's in the 60s to think Japan. About. Yeah, yeah, it's Tokyo. It's it's the swing in 60s. And boy, does it look like it. It <laughs> does. Indeed. Yeah, this is not the hippie 60s. This is the swing in 60s. Different kind. Yeah, this is this is Hard Day's Night, not Rubber Soul. Now, Arthur, All I All about free love, though. Yeah, I had there, not heard of this at all. 
before you picked it for us. Uh, how did how did this come across your radar? Uh, mostly from studying in the Criterion Collection mm-hmm. and its offerings. It has kind of an uh, iconic, I think, uh, cover art of our our hero Phoenix yeah, as he uh, uh, shoot in different directions, uh, which yeah. is pulled from a very early uh, scene in the film sequence of the film. Yeah, a yellow uh, blazer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just very, very cool, very colorful, and it just seemed very vibrant and lively. And so I've always been drawn to it. Just pure curiosity, the appeal of it, and really in the Criterion as well, because it's yeah, like thirty seven. Interesting. Sign, so it's been there for a minute. Yeah, long, long time. Yes, indeed. So uh, that is the, the movie. Let's go ahead and go around and do some reviews. We're all newbies. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Arthur, I go to you first. Then, uh, what do you think of the experience of watching a Tokyo Drifter? Uh, I think I wish I had a bigger background in uh, Yakuza films mm. uh, because, from what best understand, this is mostly kind of a parody of, of the genre and the style, uh, and also Sai Suzuki is kind of, kind of a wild man. Uh, that the the studio couldn't just wrangle in, and he, and he wanted to do whatever he wanted to do, uh, and so he, he did it. And so uh, I think having a better understanding of the genre and the tropes and those ideas, I mean, some of it's there, right? The 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 gangs are getting out. Like, I mean, that's kind of a tale as time as far as modern media goes, I think. Um, and so you know, the criminal going straight. But the actual kind of cultural... Uh, specific ideas or tropes that may uh, not be as familiar with. I think some of that may get lost in the parody. I mean, there's a saloon fight, uh, which is works. And I know the history of the Western in Japan and like the kind of feeding off of one another. Mm-hmm. So those things work. Uh, I think it's funny in moments, uh, as I alluded to up top, I think most movies could do with a theme song uh, that the protagonist uh, throughout uh, looks incredible. Production design is just next level. Uh, very visually uh, stylish, inventive, uh, some fancy camera work here and there throughout. Uh, there's one moment uh, that really struck me where uh, one of our characters moves diagonally up room in, in the shot, and then the camera falls at a diagonal. Instead of going left to right, it moves up at a, at a diagonal mm-hmm. uh, track, which I thought was just an interesting move, which you don't normally see. Um, when the camera moves laterally, it's usually up, down, left, right, not necessarily in and up. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I thought was just you know those, those little things mm-hmm. like that are really cool. Uh, narratively, uh, pretty pretty thin, uh, very episodic in nature. Um, I've kind of expect that the out conclusions of, Japanese. of the episodes kind of cut right. And I was like yeah. the episodes, and you don't really quite know how they end. Yeah, they just the, the, the drifter just drifting. Uh, but we're introduced to people like uh, um, wrong page up there, uh, the viper uh, and the sh- the shootings uh, and fun names like that uh, in really fun sets. Uh, it really does feel like narrative things are, are secondary. And again, I don't know if that's just kind of a uh, lost in translation with, with the genre type of thing or, you know, size size uh, is just more uh, interested in doing stuff to uh, be creative, be silly, mess with the studio uh, as well. So uh, overall, it's, it's okay. Uh, it was uh, a, a lot of really interesting things to look at and see. Uh, I think it has uh, some notable characteristics. And that's about about where we're at. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Arthur. What do you think, Dalton, of this film? 
I'm probably pretty pretty similarly aligned to Arthur. This is an in- incredible looking movie. I mean, yeah, the production design, the costuming, like, like the, the sets and locations, like it's all there. It really does look great. And it's it's these kind of black box theater locations we get a couple of times throughout the film. These these sort of non set dress locations that like seem sort of mythic and larger than life. Uh, just to see what they pulled off in like a 20 day shoot with very limited budget. It's just really incredible. Uh, but I, I'm with you, Arthur. This this is really thin. Uh, the dramatic tension's not really there for me at all. I kind of know exactly how this movie's going to pan out from word go. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't really draw me in the way I want it to. It, it really feels like, as I said, there's there's kind of the end cuff of all these vignettes and it makes it feel like they didn't have enough ideas to fill 82 minutes now the reality is that they probably had plenty of ideas to fill 82 minutes they just didn't have enough money to fill yeah. more more than that and that definitely is probably more likely the case because there are a lot of really cool ideas here yeah that that circular door in the wall that opens up in that one bar yeah uh, the camera that's move right. you talked about the whole saloon sequence that's literally in a western bar yeah as you talked about uh the the box art that the uh, the Criterion Collection has is the scene that it's referencing just right in the middle of the, the opening of the movie as we're d- discussing Tetsu, the phoenix, and what his deal is and yeah. how if you knock him down, he'll get back up, up like a hurricane. It's just cool. Like, there's cool flourishes throughout. The action is, is very sick. I mean, he throws a pistol up in the air, moves across the room <laughs> to catch it. Like, all kinds of crazy cool stuff. But it's really thin. I, I, boy, does it feel like every Gen X American director saw this movie, though, right? Yeah. I, I mean, Rodriguez, <laughs> Tarantino, this is yeah. up their alley. Yeah. Uh, and, and so when you watch it, especially as, you know, somebody who came up as a film watcher, kind of as that era was unfolding, to kind of go back and see this, it is hard not to see those touchstones. Um for better and for worse. Uh, I, I like this movie quite a bit, though. It's a fun time. I, I do think a long A2 minutes, unfortunately. Uh, I, again, like that lack of definitive conclusion to a lot of these kind of episodes we get does make that runtime feel longer because you're a little disjointed from what's dramatically. You know, you can't ever really get into a groove because there's nothing really happening con- concurrent. Like, there's not, not like a lot of cohesion from one scene to the next so you're often like trying to get your earrings as you're entering each new scene you're really entering a new location in a new time period a lot of time it's unclear how long the drifter's been drifting so you're you're trying to play catch up with the movie a lot and that doesn't work in its favor that often because so much of the time once you've gotten caught up with what's happening you're on to the next episode basically uh so again those are sort of my quibbles with it but again very slick looking movie love that theme song can't get enough of it uh, really fun performances. I think all the, the bad guys are sufficiently bad. The heroes are very heroic. Uh, it was cool that uh, they got the somebody that could sing to do the the opening. Mm-hmm. It was the actor for Tetsu. The that the, I I don't know if you watched the same interview that, from years later that I watched Arthur, but uh, they do have an interview with Suzuki. And one of the other things he talked about was like uh, getting the script and be like, oh, well, this is a pop star movie. We need a pop star for this. <laughs> and I just like the, this process is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just like him being like, oh, OK, well, this is we have we need a theme song and we need a guy that can sing it and act it. And uh, the, that's the kind of movie we're making. Uh, just very interesting guy from uh, what little bit of the interview I watched. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's a mixed success for me is kind of where I'm at. Dustin, how, how about you? Uh, I like the movie a lot. I think I might be about as warm as you are, Dalton, on it. I think this movie is a 26-episode season of a show in which you just simply just took the big <laughs> action set pieces. 
I just choked my own spit. Oh, that's embarrassing. This is I started talking. I apologize, everyone. It's <clears> a <throat> rookie move. <laughs> rookie move. What a what a podcaster I am. But it is like like you took a twenty six episode series and like okay, what are the big fight moments of each of these twenty six episodes? Maybe not even all twenty six of them, and just ran them all together. That is kind of the feeling of the of the, of the, of the, of the it's real elliptical in that sense. It's like how that Neon Genesis movie is just a recap <laughs> of the whole series. Yeah, yeah, and so. That works, though. Uh, I think it's fun. I enjoy that. It is because the style is matters. And it is because it is. And I'm not super knowledgeable about Yakuza films either, but it is a send up of this sort of, you know, loyalty, loyalty, mm. loyalty thing. The loyalty ends up biting the keister in the end. And I, I, I can say that without giving anything away yeah. about the film. Yeah. Um, and so, it, I mean, I see what it's doing without being, you know, super, super versed, all things Yakuza. And, uh, but that being said, I, it's, it's got a lot of stuff. I, I wish it did more with the way it plays in the first sequence with black and white throughout the rest of the film. I love a super high contrast, high resolution black and white photography yeah. for that train sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want a little bit more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like do, do the Lindy Anderson, Lindsay Anderson and if thing and like cut some of the stuff in the middle of the movie and, uh, just have to have more fun with that. And perhaps make a real association with the changes, or likely Anders don't, and let the audience do that as they watch it. I, I think that would have made it a little bit more fun, I think, and would have given another layer uh, to to the foot. That being said, it is sort of like, that is the moment of the past, and sort of like the end of his, I think it's supposed to signify the end of his gangsterdom. I believe like, so, yeah, that's sort of, he gets hurrah. jumped out a little bit by this other gang, and that, that is sort of, then he goes back to Turo? For his boss's name, uh, but he goes to his boss and is like, "All right, we did it. We're out." So We're I think straight, you're right. Yeah. I think that's that is supposed to be that like that jump to color signifies, which is I mean fine, but I I think there there's more there are more possibilities there. I'm not a filmmaker, and I could think of some, and that means that there's probably a lot, <laughs> is what I would suggest. You know, but but that being said, I enjoy it. Uh, I think it's a lot of fun. I do like the action. It is really like watching the sizzle reel of uh, brain inspiration headcanon for. Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino, and all the, all those you know, uh, Jedi sprats uh, mm-hmm. as they're coming up, and so yeah, it's got a lot of that going on. But yeah, it's a fun movie. I enjoyed it. I don't find it long because uh, I figured out pretty quickly I didn't need to care about the narrative, and once yeah. I stopped caring about it and just started watching how cool it was, I'm there for it. That's and, fair, and so uh, that that worked for me. But it, it, the, if you are trying to figure it out, it would be a frustrating. I don't. Watch. I don't recommend it. Yeah, I don't recommend that at all. Yeah, it's it, just it, look at the pretty colors. It does make for a frustrating watch. Yeah, yeah just enjoy the vibes because they're the vibes are yeah. cool. They're yeah, immaculate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there you go. There you go, to listener. Our biases are generally pro. We kind of like it. Uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, whatnot. But we are going to say more things about it now in this little section of the show. We'd like to call expand the syllabus, Dalton. Please explain what that is. Well, Dustin, normally this is the part of the show where we deliver on the promise of our premise. We talk about the 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 films that you would never discuss in a film studies course. But as you've already said, it's anti-trash month, which means we're talking about the films that you might talk about in a film studies course. So it's, you know, pretty easy assignments for us this month, basically. Uh, Teach a movie that somebody could conceivably teach. How would you teach it? It doesn't have to be a film studies class. It can be, you know, another academic discipline. Uh, We can bring in films. We can bring in articles, books, uh, essays, whatever we're into uh, to kind of help pad things out. But that's what we're going to do is uh, the syllabus real quick. There you go. Um, And with that, do you have a syllabus prepared, my friend? I do. I am. I'm, of course, obsessed with a pop song, as we've discussed. This is this is such a good jam. Uh, And I think that this would be taught in a 
in a class about music and movies. And I think it would be in a unit within a larger class. You know, we talk about scores, silent uh, live scoring to the sound era. But I think the unit where we would cover Tokyo Drifter would be in a, a unit specifically about movie pop songs. So we talk about this song. We'd also look at, of course, 9 to 5, which we just covered a few weeks ago. Uh, Fight the Power from Do the Right Thing. Uh, Kiss from a Rose from Batman Forever. Yes. Yeah. Raindrops keep, keep Falling on My Head, a classic that's come up in that was like such a seminal use of a of, 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 of a pop made for a movie that they couldn't stop using other movies afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's great. Uh, and then I think we'd look at two recent examples, uh, Lose Self uh, from 8 Mile and um, uh, Shallow from the uh, mm-hmm. the, the remake mm-hmm. of The Star is Born. Uh, all of those giving us something different. All of those pop songs that are specifically made for their movies, I think with the exception of maybe Kiss from a Rose, I think that that's repa- a repackaged one. Uh, I could be wrong on I don't that. know what Seal's re- recording history no, is sure. with that song. I yeah. thought it was for that, is that album. For that? I think it is for the album. just for that album. Okay, so I could be wrong. I tried to make sure we, I picked uh, that That one's just I love, very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I, but I, I tried to pick... It's a jam. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a bop. <laughs> I'm singing it right now. It's a good time. Uh, but yeah, I tried to pick films that are or songs that were recorded for their movies and sort of sort of exist part of the larger either marketing arm of the movie or part of the, the narrative hook of the movie. You're right. It was actually on his second eponymous album. Okay. Uh, in 94 and it was included in the film, the never ending story three, uh, Whoa, before awesome. it was released a year later in 95 as part of the Batman forever See, soundtrack. I thought it, it was... didn't quite hit with never ending story three. Who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk? Um, no one went to the record <laughs> store and said, I need that soundtrack now. I thought it was like Pineapple Express, where that song Paper Planes was like, had been around for a couple of years gotcha. and then like became a huge hit because yeah. of that trailer. Yeah, I thought that that was the case. I just remember so much of the marketing of that song in the video totally. and everything about well, it. Yeah. That's they, the only, that, that was my first like engagement with that song. I think it made Seal's career, really. I mean, I, having him come having in. a career, but he broke out, right? Having him come in to do the, the tie-in video is huge. Yeah, and to, to rip us the song to like specific specifically be a music video tie-in i think is is a big thing i i I'm, maybe i'm cheating by not bringing in i should probably bring in you know a, a wild, wild west or a men in black <laughs> not wild wild west new men in black i like the, well you don't want to see his hand wah, wah, where his wicka, hip wicka, be at. you don't want to see his hand where his hip be at damn it wiser words Body? never spoken confused yeah i'm saying it's because he carries a gun because it's the old west <laughs> The wild, wild west. Exactly. Uh, I don't know. That feels the the actor performer feel like such its own separate thing, and that's that's the Tokyo Drifter really does kind of like symbolize that mode of that. You know, we we kind of associate with '90s the the era of the pop star movie star star crossover in American film, but you know, to remember that this is a tradition that goes all the way back to '60s Japanese cinema, I think, is very useful and informative. I want to propose just an area of ideas Hit for me. a research paper that would be within this class you're taking. So I'm taking your class, right? And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, okay, you're, what you're doing is really fun. Mm-hmm. And I love, you know, the Whitney Houston bodyguard stuff. Totally. And, you know, that's like an album that was produced, you know, in mm-hmm. tandem with the uh, release of that film. And uh, we, I think we talked about this on the show, maybe, at some point. Um, Garth Brooks tried this one time, too. Uh, the, I don't know that we talked about this. The Garth Brooks, uh, the alter ego Garth Brooks. Chris uh, Gaines. Chris Gaines. Sure. So the Chris Gaines record was because he was trying to put this bodyguard movie, this movie about this Australian kid coming up in pop, and he recorded the record 
in See. order to and and I like an experiment like, like, like pitch deal like thing. a pitch deal yeah and then the the movie thing fell through but so I guess we're gonna drop the record anyway um, it'd be fun to do something different for a little bit I didn't know Chris Gaines was supposed to be from no movie. yeah it was, it was not like he was switching over to go pop That's so funny it was just it was it was actually part of his bodyguard movie that he was gonna try to make That's so good. So, um, anyway, FYI, fun. Yeah, fun. no, that's a paper for that class, absolutely. <laughs> I want to write that paper. Yeah, tell me more. I, that's uh, all I know at this point. And that's that, that's what the class looks like, yeah. We're, we're talking about scores probably elsewhere in the class, sort of the history of, like, orchestral music as, as an accompaniment to movies. Uh, it is not something that starts from the beginning. Um, but again, I, I think the unit on, or the, not the unit, but the, the um, or again, yeah, the unit within the class on pop songs, I think, is, is where Tokyo Drifter fits most at home. Uh, Arthur, Arthur, what about you? Did you teach this this uh, wacky movie? Yeah, so I, again, it got real caught up in the production design and kind of the surreal nature of it. These, like you said, almost mythical otherworldly sort of sets that they're on these uh, box theater type mm-hmm. settings and uh, stark whites with, with odd structures and, you know, the everything bagel on a pole and mm-hmm. uh, that shows up in one scene. And, and so all those different components, uh, the very surreal element of that. So I thought about just production design. Uh, so this may be, I mean, you could do a whole class, I think, on production design or at least craftsmanship in film. Uh, so this would be in the production design uh, section. Did you say it was the everything bagel on a pole in the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I, I want to just highlight that you said that so the dear listener does not miss the everything everywhere all at once reference there. Yes. Go on. Yeah. Uh, there's a multiverse where he, he doesn't have to point that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Arthur and I knew. Arthur and I knew it could have it could could have let lie. <laughs> Uh, commentary provided this week by Dustin Sells. Uh, <laughs> I'm John Madden this week. Boom, go. <laughs> and maybe you know what it makes me think of. I was watching Impractical Jokers with Becca. Yeah. Do you know some of the episodes of that show just have like little factoids sticking notes? It's like, like pop-up, pop-up video. video. Yeah, it's like pop-up okay. video for episodes of Impractical Jokers. It's very Wild. very weird. It's just like j- joke notes. It's like a whole. That's like a whole fan group cultural thing in itself, right? And well, that's the thing I was asking her. I was like, how do people, people get these guys? real into Impractical Jokers? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's she's like going down re- a, a yeah. rabbit hole right now. Yeah. Wild. Anyway, uh, production design. Uh, we'd actually start with a discussion of uh, the Winchester house and the surreal nature of that just for mm-hmm. a, a kind of a real world discussion of surrealness and how that looks and, and a, a real world example in, in this woman and what she had gone through and what she had done. And so we look at that. We may watch the movie for fun, uh, but it would not be a sign because it's not great. Um, but it would be a fun time so they can kind of see uh, some of the elements of the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, from there, we'd go into Edward Scissorhands. And specifically, we'd take a look at the Inventor's Workshop, uh, which looks like H.R. A- Geiger uh, developed a Rubenberg machine um, uh, in the shop where Vincent Price crafts Edward uh, using one of the robots from his assembly line and turning him into a man uh Android thing uh, from there, but the production Android, design. If you will. Yes, I love the use of the verb craft though for for Edward. He feels like he's something that he'd sell later on Etsy. Yes, and I like that. Dude, dude would do so well on Etsy. <laughs> God, so many just run units the would run. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, that and his uh, gig job uh, doing uh, topiaries for everybody mm. uh, in Gallardia. Um, but uh, yeah, the, just the the design. I mean, the whole movie production design is the the. The castle on the hill versus the pastel 
colors of suburban uh, American dream uh, town down below is an interesting dichotomy as, as well. But I just want to think specifically about the, the inventors inventors workshop. Obviously we did look at the red room uh, from twin peaks. Yeah. You uh, would. Kind of the, I think her example of surreal production design and uh, the dream sequences that accompany that. And just the bizarre bonkers uh, enigmatic move of David Lynch. And we could also probably talk about a racer head as well. That industrial thing he's doing there. Uh, moving into the radiator, uh, we'd look at the Overlook Hotel, the labyrinthine structure that has a beginning, maybe, but seemingly has no end, and things are not what they always appear. And inside doesn't match the outside. Yeah, and yeah. that whole uh, thing there, which is just a lot of fun. Maybe talk about Room Two Thirty Seven as well, and look at some of that fun stuff just to to kick it around. Uh, but nothing serious there. Uh, we'd look at the studios and the galleries and Crimes of the Future. Uh, Cronenberg yeah. has done there uh, because it's it's a fun uh, modern take on this and something that's just so endlessly fascinating with these these devices that have been created and the world in which they exist and operate that's very post apocalyptic and of a different time out of you know out of time element to it but uh, the actual you know the uh, autopsy machines and things like that as well are very fascinating the like. Uh, uh, cocoon style of them, I think, is mm-hmm. very curious. And so we'd look at that. Uh, we'd look at the Nostromo alien and talk about H.R. Geiger again uh, mm-hmm. there and and how so much of that film's mood uh, and aesthetic relies so heavily on the design of that ship and the way everything is constructed there. Uh, finally, we would look at the Salvador Dali designs of, of Spellback Hitchcock, uh, which is the most on-the-nose uh, example of this, but also... One of the more uh, maybe interesting and fun as well. Well, and it's sort of like the Urtex, especially for the Lynch stuff. And, yeah. You know, you know and yeah. the Overlook for that matter. You yeah. Know, there's a way in which that is sort of where you get to the other stuff. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that that's what we would do. We just talk about kind of surreal production design, the role of production design, mid on sand, and all that fun stuff, and look at these films and uh, how the surrealness alters or affects or impacts those elements. That is excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I th- I think what I would do with this movie is I would think about Technicolor radical experimentation in the 1960s. Uh, because this movie is making a big deal of its technicolor net. Now, Technicolor... Been around for 30 years? Been around a long, long time. We're using... It was not the necessarily even the industry standard. I'm not sure when the Oscars stopped doing a Best Picture, Black and White, White but Best Picture Color. But um, I think that they had already at this point. Um, and so it could, could go either way. But when you went to the movies at this point in the 1960s, it was as likely to catch a color film as it was to catch a, uh, a black and white film. By the end of the 1960s, color was the industry standard. And so this is that moment of transition there. But a lot of, again, lower-budget filmmakers were not... They were not well. Color was more expensive to shoot in at that time, and so it was. Some of them, when they finally had some success as independent, uh, new wave, second wave, um, kind of filmmaking, uh, that success sort of was parlayed into their ability to have better cameras and, and again, access to these these uh, tech or other uh, color film processes. Um, and how they would go ahead and use those colors to experiment with films. And so w- this movie does exactly that, and I think that that's a lot of fun and very, very interesting there, unlike what you might see in, like, a, a character of Saint Lowe or Stray Dogs or something like that. So 
you, you see the transition happening here. Another good example of this is uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Made in USA. It's not his first color film, but it is uh, very much him doing the noir thing, the breathless thing, but uh, mitigated and, and narrated through Anna Karenina, uh, which is interesting there and uh, just fascinating and kind of a hard-to-find film uh, as well, uh, which is a Disney film with blood, is uh, the way he <laughs> opens up by announcing what this movie's going to be and then does basically a Philip Marlowe-esque kind of detective story all the way through there. Another example of this is Jacques Demy's The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Uh, the uh, musical is well-known for its use of Technicolor. 1939, Wizard of Oz comes out full color. Mm. Uh, so uh, this is typically one place or one instance in which that kind of color gets deployed a lot mm -hmm. in these films. But what Demi does that's fascinating to me is he's making this sort of radical bit of social commentary and make pretty downer kind of set of notes about people who are in love, but life happened, and people moved on went their own ways and sorry and 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 just the whole thing in these pastel pinks and blues and yellows and it gives it this real sort of uh confectionery wes anderson kind of color palette uh, really grand budapest hotel especially uh, of his films kind of color palette and then tells this very very different kind of story uh with that in the 1960s and i think that's a pretty interesting uh uh, other instance of this. The final example here, and I've already mentioned on the show so far, is Lindsay Anderson's If, um, where uh, Roddy McDowell, uh, not Roddy McDowell. I haven't seen If, don't give me Malcolm help. Malcolm McDowell, yeah, yeah, Roddy McDowell's in Planet of the Apes. Malcolm McDowell from Clockwork Orange uh, is uh, in a boarding school. It's Harry Co Harry Potter um, ends Hogwarts the first year he's there, uh, is the name of this movie. <laughs> and it goes back and forth between color and black and white film stocks. And as I mentioned earlier on the show, it's just because they only had so much film stock to shoot with. And Anderson said, well, mix it up and then just let me know what we're pulling today. And just shot that scene or, or that set of film in whatever stock he happened to have at that day, and uh, let us make our own associations. And then the results were brilliant. And again, very, very radical, as well as a filmmaker. Anderson is very part of that sort of uh, British new wave as well. And so fascinating little movie. Um, could not make it today um, because it ends in kind of a school shooting kind of situation. Mm. But it's not real, so it's different. But it's still, you wouldn't, you wouldn't. You just wouldn't. I, don't know, I watched a movie from this year about a school shooting. So, well, was it the which one? Which one was it? it was the, the Fallout. Uh, okay, I, I thought I was like I was wondering if it was the Die Hard in a School movie from the Daily Wire. <laughs> oh, I think that might have been last year though. Yeah, I think so. Oh my. Uh, no, not that. It, not valorizing. It's 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 a surrealist sort of um, sure. ribbon is what this is about here with this film, and so it's a different uh, species by far than something that's sort of glorifying your. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in cell types. So it's a different kind of thing there. But that would be a way in which I would approach uh, using this film. It, the use of color and the sort of radical new waves as they spread across Asia to Europe. Um, American examples, I don't really have any because I don't think we really were that creative in early and mid 60s with our uses of color versus black and white in the states now yeah yeah we kind of sucked <laughs> so we got better by the late 60s but up until then we kind of sucked so there you go to listen silva just got much much longer i think it's now time we, we got down to business right 
And that business is, as always, analysis. What shall we approach first, friends? Are we going to relate motif of the uh, Drifter song and the Western stuff that kind of ties with that? Because that's the thing I thought of. As soon as he was doing his whistling and, 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 and singing a song to himself, I thought, oh, this is like, you know, Shane. This is sure. this is a Western. Got, is yeah, what, singing cowboy. Singing cowboy kind of thing, right? And uh, and the way in which it pulls, you know, not just uh, some commentary on Yakuza films, but it's also very much aware of American filmmaking as well. Sure. And, and, and so I, I don't, I mean, I have no more to say about it than that. But do we have any other thoughts about this movie as a Western? It's got, you know, the Western saloon fight, which is fun. Then uh, the the bloomers upskirt, which is very Japanese and very Western at the same time. Uh, it's simultaneously works as a moment of, of like it's its own, own, its own culture. And also as a moment of like, uh, literally like wild West. When I say Western, that kind of Western mm-hmm. Western filmmaking, it's, it's pulling tropes multiple places in that scene, which is kind of fun. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know how much there is there for that either. Uh, you know, the lonely drifter, uh, who, who goes from town to town, you know, right. that it is sort of a classic cowboy movie trope and, you know, it's at all, as well as being sort of a samurai movie trope, you know, Ronin. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that is kind of well-worn territory. And so far as the samurai is to the Western anyway. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, as parody is like the thing you would hit on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, truly we've already kind of alluded to this, but this is a, a style over substance movie at a lot sure. of levels. Is that yeah. a problem necessarily, especially when we're talking about something that I that, I mean, this is canonized in so far as that, like being in the criterion collection makes you part of the film canon in a lot of ways. Way, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, does, does a movie to be canonized, does it need anything other than like really cool style and, you know, to be the first to do it or one of the early ones to do it? I mean, that's, that's kind of what this is banking on is, how early it's doing some really kind of things that would look radical a few decades later in other international cinemas. Well, there's a way in which, you know, the idea of first is mm-hmm. kind of a thing that we sort of try to sort of nail, but really first is not what does it. It's, it's popular and uh, well-received and um, much seen, I think, mm-hmm. instances of this. Uh, for instance, we talked about the jump cut last week with Breathless, and the first instance of the jump cut is a, a film from about two years before that. Uh, another French filmmaker, um, what is it? The, the, I'm trying to think of the... Uh, uh, Ma Un Negro, uh, Myself a Black, and mm-hmm. it's, it's shot in Senegal. Senegal? Or Morocco? I can't remember. Uh, I, I watched a third of it the other day with Spanish subtitles, which was not incredibly helpful, um, as I am a non-Spanish speaker. But I once passed a test, so I could kind of struggle and limp along, and then I gave up. But that's the really first major film to do a lot of jump to cuts. jump cutting, but not a lot of people saw it. It wasn't really, really well received. But when we see the jump cuts in Breathless. A lot of people that is really, really well received. I am certain that Tokyo Drifter, and I don't have any sort of like, oh, immediately out of my back pocket, here's your Japanese film that's doing just that, or other film of its ilk that's doing something like this yeah. um, um, to pull out of my pocket. But I would be surprised to find out this is the very, very first time in 1966 that somebody has sort of approached this kind of pastiche, um, uh, very, very style-oriented, um, you know, hyper-kinetic, hyper-colored, uh, kind of filmmaking, I would I would be surprised to uh, know that this is the first movie that ever did this, or even necessarily the first movie that Suzuki ever did. That yeah, did yeah this. I, was, I would I would be curious to know because this is when did we say sixty six? Yes, I mean he's he's pretty prolific director by this point. You know, I mean he's been working for ten years. He's made twenty movies, yeah, maybe by that point. 
so yeah, it would be hard to know. But yeah, it, it is that kind of that old story of the second person starts the trend. Right. Right. It's you can do whatever you want, but it, until somebody else does it, it's not a it's not, not a thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. And then usually somebody kind of takes your great idea and says, "Now this is how you really deploy it well." Yeah. And uh, sort of think about how I'd smooth it out. Yeah. And and I think it's kind of what happens with with whatever was um with Moana Negra. Uh, the same idea was that film was pretty good, but it probably needed a little bit of smoothing out. It does have a character in there who calls himself Edward G. Robinson, though. In That's the same fine. way that Breathless, you know, has Michelle sort of doing his uh, Bogart. Uh, Bogart thing. There's there's one, one kid that that's just his name. My name is Edward G. Robinson, and uh, <laughs> it's great, very right? very fun. Uh, and so it does a lot of the same kind of pieces there, but it's the, the one that finds an audience. And there might be several films up until that point. And Tokyo Drifter was historically a film that really did find the audience. It was very fun, and it did really speak very well um, across uh, transnationally uh, to other. Um, cinema watchers of other national locations. And I think, um, you know, you mentioned that the Criterion Channel is a major institution that helps support the film. Um, you got to think about other existing institutions there where writers from the Village Voice, writers from the New York Times, from the Guardian, mm-hmm. and uh, some of these other uh, major kind of um, uh, journalistic Institutions, as well as what, however, it did at festivals. Not sure what its festival track record was. We happen to have that that in right in front of us. It'd be cool to know. But um, if it got played at least at a lot of a lot of festivals, people would have gotten a chance to see it. Uh, yeah, I was looking as you were talking. I'm not seeing anything, unfortunately. Yeah. There's not. I mean, yeah, the uh, there's not a lot on the film's production stuff. At least on Wikipedia, I'm sure there may be something, but mm-hmm. you know. yeah. Now, but I'll wager that it's those institutions that sort of, again, and, and, and the Breathless example, I think, mm. still plays out. That, that film got some play, but the same level of play. I mean, 400 Blows really, really hadn't even brought at this point when that, that film comes out. And so it is, yeah. it's an early, early French New Wave film uh, that we're talking about here. Now, the Japanese New Wave is kicking up a little bit later as well. And so it's pretty early in the, the cycle of the Japanese New Wave, New Wave as well. There are films that go back as far as 58 as well that sometimes get the, those dates applied to them. So... I would kind of think that um, this movie isn't a first, but it is the one that a lot of people saw, right? I, again, the sort of idea you were talking about it on your uh, top 100s, the uh, the Sidney Lumet film goes alongside um, Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. Why? It, uh, I keep wanting to say nonstop. That's a Liam Neeson movie. It's not called that. It's called... Failsafe. Failsafe. I was just seeing the hyphen. My brain could not yeah. see anything but a poster with a hyphen on it. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, but, but my memory failsafe, palace was really failing you're me. You're arguing is, is as good or better than Dr. Strangelove. I, I prefer it to Strangelove. Yeah, and I way. think probably a lot of... I mean, I, I'm sure that's probably not an uncommon opinion to have, but Strangelove does come out first, and people yeah. do get to see that, and then they go, oh, I've already seen that, and they don't, go, they see, they don't see the set. Well, the Strangelove is funny. Same. Yeah. And then Failsafe is not. It's not yeah. No, it's not a comedy. So, <laughs> it's more serious. Take it's, on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a, it's a harder watch in that regard because it is like kind of existential, like not letting you have fun. But is that, that, that finding an audience? Yeah, is absolutely. Kind of the situation Big there. time. I think that I thought, you know, in trying to pull some release history for you as far as like how did this find its international audience, I did find something that I thought, that I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Is it sort of kind of 
uh, one of the other ways that it was considered ahead of its time is like being ahead of the curve on the turn in Yakuza films from being like chivalry films where the Yakuza and Arthur already talked about this as kind of a parody of the genre of films. But the thing that it's sort of uh, given credit for trailblazing is like this pivot to, to like true crime Yakuza movies, mm. which like look mm. at them with, with much more like scorn or at very least social, current social commentary. Yeah. I, as opposed to like chivalrous, like pseudo samurai. I'm getting you know. like Wes Craven making scream vibes from this. Right? Interesting. So, like Suzuki's mm-hmm. made a bunch of these kind of Yakuza BB movies. Mm-hmm. He knows the tropes. He knows the ins and outs. Uh, and so he does this as kind of a. I don't know, thesis treatise right. on the Yakuza of the film and set up the themes. And... Craven's greatest success, too. Yeah. You know. But it's, it's the same idea. I mean, Craven works long in, mm-hmm. in the horror. I mean, he's done he's done a few Sephiroth original things, but he's by and large been a more straight horror director, and he makes Scream, which is much more serious on one hand, but also parody satire of the genre, the tropes, yeah. and what, what people expect and people understand and people want from these movies. Uh, and then shifts the the genre mm-hmm. uh, from there and I, I feel like i don't know not having seen some of his other work and then better understanding of the films at large but it, it seems like that's kind of a thing that's happening here with with suzuki yeah i mean it's interesting especially like the the change in how like the yakuza is presented as like they're not there there's morality or honor there like like the, the villains like in no uncertain terms, painted as like having n- no code, right? That's his whole deal. Is like, ha, honor means nothing. What he's uh, what is it? Money, power, rule. Now that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, pretty classic, clearly mustache twirling, and, and like yeah, how in Montana, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it is all money, all power, all the time. There, there is no code. To these guys, and you know, uh, Phoenix's Tetsu's boss, like, does end up turning on him. Yeah, and and like also choosing to be about power and money yeah so it is it is interesting i guess that that that's not a common thing for these films at the era at this point and 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 like it's the 70s when that becomes more common i guess so it is interesting that this is kind of like situated as this deconstruction of a genre we don't yeah. really understand so i mean i guess with the are, are the yakuza films then at that point prior to this i guess are they kind of more akin to like the way in which we presented Bonnie and Clyde and Dillinger as like folk heroes. It seems like, yeah, they're literally the tr- literal translation is chivalry films is what, it, what I mm-hmm. saw. Um, so they definitely they're, pre- they're presented as the successors to, to the samurai code. Okay. Like they're, yeah. they're considered like a okay. part of an honorable and no part of Japanese society. Gotcha. Yeah. And then the, the pivot to well, these guys kind of training suck. as criminals. Yeah. That's kind of, this is ahead of the curve on that. Okay. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. Right. And then again, like it's, it is wrapped up in some like really traditional masculine, stuff right i mean so much i can't a drifter can't have a woman i i have to alone i can't feel my feelings yeah yeah right, all right, that right. kind of good stuff um talking uh i'll keep my promise like man i th- think that's uh karate who has that um that line i think it's his, it's his boss mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean some some pretty like that that's that's, that's like gangster's code across the world right. that, that kind of like machismo stuff is baked into the, the you know the the russian mob the the sicilian mob like are all organized crime in america like it is all very much about these sort of traditionally like masculine and again, this is the police and the co- the cons are the same thing is not an original idea by any stretch of the imagination right. but, but it is interesting like how often filmmakers get to these ideas of just kind of like undercutting the, the machismo. I, think, I don't know how much this undercuts it. Maybe a little bit, but uh, it's it's hard to tell. You know, without more familiarity with the convins of the genre, 
it's it's not always clear when Suzuki's like sending things up versus when they're being straight. You know? Yeah, it, for me, it feels like I'm missing a lot, a lot of context mm-hmm. yeah. to better understand how thick this might be. Mm-hmm. And I then have to question, you know, you know, if somebody has never seen a horror film and they scream or they watch a scary movie, does it work? Yeah, you know, especially from another culture or a different language. Yeah, they've no experience with the American element of it as well. Yeah, they're just going off of a best guess translate well, not best guess but like a, a best subtitle translation yeah of of you know jamie kennedy talking about horror movies that's not exactly mm-hmm. all the context you need for scream yeah. to work but yeah then i think back i mean go back to your idea of style over substance we think back to i mean the, the french critics watching american western noir and not really understanding what they're about but just looking at the art of uh, them. the art of them and then, really appreciate yeah it. and i think kind of going full circle back to that that maybe sometimes style is enough yeah to warrant canonization i think in this case it may very well be because it really is doing a lot of cool stuff and again like we, we talked about the budgetary limitations like he specifically in this interview from years later talking about the movie he specifically references like unless you're mr kurosawa like you don't you don't have time to do rehearsals you don't have time to do mm-hmm. anything especially in the, this time in the, the film industry and from what i understand uh from what some i read is the studio really did try to limit him because oh. he had a penchant for doing stuff bananas. like this yeah. yeah yeah and being a wild card and, and they wanted something thing straight you know normal and he was like nah, I'm, nah I'll, I'll see what i can do well that was yeah <laughs> I, I, i'll get back to you what one thing specifically i saw the time was like well we needed to shoot some young dancers and i thought well, well why don't them from below <laughs> anybody can shoot some dancing <laughs> that a, so that's where that that's that like oh, i was looking up through the he's looking up through the, yeah. the plexiglass yeah. floor yeah so apparently that that all comes from that idea yeah that's awesome. interesting guy Zuki. seems yeah. like it from what yeah. i read I was going to think about a thematic trope in this movie that we've seen a lot of movies because, you know, as Arthur was reading this, this guy tries to leave and, you know, his past comes back to get him. And mm-hmm. this is, I mean, it's a witness protection movie. It's a old gun, gunslinger kind of it's movie. It's John Wick. It's yeah. John Wick. It's, you know, there's a number of these kinds of it's movies. taken. Yeah. And I, I, I'm wondering about the sort of preoccupation right now, sort of universally right now in the cinematic world, with the idea of you can't just quit Mm-hmm. Whatever it is. Well, Social Security dying and retirement's not enough to live on, son, so you get back at it. <laughs> yeah. It's really what it comes down but to. But really, the, but the idea that there's 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 no way to come back from uh, bad living or, mm. from, you know, that there's that there's a, that you can stop for a while. You can't really walk, walk away. But you really walk away, not because of you, but because of those, you know, bits of unfinished business. I'm not sure what it is about that, but there's an interesting sort of idea that I, I wonder that we we believe in a society that's full of static characters that people don't really change, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this goes all the way back to something like Unforgiven, the uh, the western with Clint Eastwood, mm-hmm. is that yeah yeah he changes for a while but he doesn't really change. And uh, when finally you know uh, his friend, um, golly, it's Morgan Freeman, Freeman. Yeah. yeah, gets killed. That's when he goes back to being the same bad, old bad man that he always was. Yeah. You shot an unarmed man. Armed himself. <laughs> yeah, should, yeah. Uh, that's there's this. Strange way in which I, I I wonder about you know just we we talk about how much we love to see dynamic characters and complex characters, but we seem to be really really focused on characters that are unable to change. That change is something that's not 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 just difficult, but in the end always impossible. You know, and I, I don't and know what I that think, says. Well, I think it thinks, uh, it may be something about the character. I think about uh, Howie from Howie right from uh, Uncut Gems, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. His uh, Adam Sandler's character there, right? Who is uh, given time, a chance to make the change, and then 
He's, he's going to do it. He's going to do the stupid thing. He's yeah. going to do the Howie thing. Yeah. Or even the old man old in the man gun, gun. Yeah. Where, you know, he could quit. Raleigh. He doesn't want to quit Raleigh Banks. It's the thrill of the chase. It's control that to be able to do it because he can do it. Right. I think if there's a way in which you can develop a character like that to maybe make your audience think about why they're that way, mm-hmm. there may be some value to it. I don't know. The character changes. Is that interesting? Well, and it's and interesting. I think that's the other thing you have to kind of weigh out. Well, as it goes back to, is it go back to Paul Schrader's sort of thesis? Goodness is boring, and so if you change from evil to goodness, and you've become uninteresting, is is that the same idea here? Well, let me hit you with this. Tetsu is, you know, sort of an island of goodness in a world of corruption, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he is sort of posited as the one good Yakuza. Mm-hmm. Like, he's the only one who cares about honor, that cares about, you know, going straight and being a legitimate business person and, you know, trying trying to conduct yourself with with honor. Like, that, that is so foreign to all of his adversaries in this film, except for Shooting Star, the other former hitman. Mm-hmm. Like, pretty much everybody else, the Viper, and then the Viper's boss, whose name uh, I keep forgetting. Um, the guy that kills the Yoshi. CH word, yeah. Yeah, the... Um, that guy, um, they are so, so so evil, <laughs> so comically evil, and Tetsu is like presented as so virtuous. So it is. I get what you're saying as far as like, like that. I can't get that. I can't get out movies, but it really is in this movie like the world that changed around him. It mm-hmm. seems like like the Yakuza are presented as being the people who are changing. And they were once noble, and now they're not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Tetsu, the Phoenix, is the one is is like actually act, acting morally in this world. Mm. Cause that's, that's why he's mad at shooting stars. Like you don't have a code. Right. So it's when Kenji that doesn't have a code, isn't it? I forget what shooting stars. Shooting star. Yeah. He's got a name. Oh, okay. He doesn't want to be called shooting star. Unfortunately, I don't remember what he I don't remember. called. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember his name. To the shooting star. Okay. Yeah. 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 This is the guy with the cool, cool jacket, the green jacket. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm with you. Yeah. So that's, I don't know. He's, he is sort of, the guy that got out and stayed out, right? Mm-hmm. Even though he has to beat some people up for Tetsu. Uh, but before Tetsu comes in for help, he's, he's already out. So the, the character who like got out and mostly stayed out exists in this film. But maybe as you say, like the Paul Schrader thesis, he does get pulled back in because the movie's more interesting to have a veteran get pulled back in to help the young guy trying to get out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just more interesting. How much of this aligns with the idea though, chivalry is dead. Mm. I mean, do those things kind of, yeah, go maybe. hand in hand. Maybe we're talking about the death of the chivalrous film, mm-hmm. the, the chivalrous accuser yeah. film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, again, you know, especially with so much, as is often the case in films with a lot of machismo, women are sort of a secondary consideration, uh, and especially I forget um, Tetsu's uh, girlfriend, the singer, the singer, uh, Chaharu. Yeah, Chaharu. She's used as a bargaining chip throughout. And then is kind of abandoned by him because he has to wander alone to, uh, for really no reason other than it sounds cool. Yeah, it yeah. sounds cool to say I have to wander alone. Yeah. It yeah. makes for a better song. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, yeah. it's, well, it's I mean, better if the, drift, the drifter's lonely. Thinking about records yeah. Yeah. at that point. You know, here I go again. Is he a bard? With my girlfriend. It's not nearly as cool as here I go again on my own. That's Arthur. He is a bard. 100%. <laughs> uh, probably chaotic neutral, but, you know, maybe chaotic good. Hard to say. Definitely a bard, though. Uh, I don't know. Any any big thoughts on this movie that we haven't got? To? I'm not sure that there are. Uh, let's go ahead and render a verdict in that case. Uh, what do we say? Shelf or trash for Tokyo Drifter? Arthur, go. Why me, Lord? Because I like to pick on you. Um... Oh boy. Um, 
think I would ever so gently lay this atop the, the trash pile. Mm. I think it's it's very pretty, but I don't know. I, I think you could get use out of it pedagogically and, and just even inspirationally if you were making a film and kind of wanted to ape this. But I, I don't think you're lacking if you don't catch this one. Fair enough. Fair enough. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, unfortunately, the experience of watching the trailer for this film cannot be topped by watching the film. It's <laughs> yes. just got an, an immaculate trailer. 100% correct. Such a good, good Criterion cut, such a good trailer to sell this movie. They re, they really did. Uh, it's it, it looks cool as hell, but you can kind of summarize what's cool as hell about it in two and a half minutes. Uh, so it's, it's a very light trash. It's a good time. As we said with Don't Worry Darling, even more so than Don't Worry Darling, this is a great movie to throw on at a party. Mm-hmm. This, this is a party movie. In fact... I might do this at a New Year's party I have coming up. What's uh, a better call than Don't Worry Darling? <laughs> yeah, probably. So, again, I don't I hate this movie. It's, it's a very, you know, soft recommendation for sure if you're, you're like, interested in Japanese cinema, gangster mm-hmm. cinema. But, again, not a, a must-get to, mm-hmm. probably. Dustin, what about you? I think it's notably connected to a lot of interesting, like, areas. You know, like you said, uh, gangster movies, uh, Japanese film, uh, new waves in general, just color, mm-hmm. uh, the 60s. It's it, it really is kind of uh, emblematic of a lot of different moments and uh, various kind of nodes you could connect it to in film studies. But there are better examples of kind of all those things with, with other movies as well. I'm glad it's in the Criterion Collection. I think it's it's a movie that should, should be part part of an archive it's a movie that should be in that sense canonized you know in that institutional kind of canon where you can find it but as far as buying it and owning it unless it just be your jam um if your name's robert rodriguez yeah you probably ought to put it on your shelf but otherwise yeah just catch it stream it whenever you get a chance to and um it's a recommend but it's not a known uh, for me are you gonna is are any of us gonna pull if we get to go to the criterion closet and i don't know how many moves you get to pull it feels like about a dozen no uh, yeah no pull the answer is no yeah, I mean, the cover is not cool enough. I, it's a really cool box art. But well, I'd pull it and be like, look at the cover. Yeah, put I'd it back be like, on the shelf. Well, see, I mean, <laughs> you know about this one? The, the question would be this. They don't call us in as filmmakers because we're not. They no, would, no. They would call in on a topic, right? That's true. And so if they called us in on, on certain topics, I'm if, if I was doing gangster films, I think this is one of the movies I'd grab. That's fair. You know? Yeah. If I was doing New Waves, I'm like, you know what? And this is a weird example. It might be one of them that I would grab. If I'm just like, hey, your best movies ever? No, I'm not going to get it. But if I I needed it to connect, you know, a dozen movies to something, I mean, I I probably would grab it for that, though. Because it, it's, I mean, it's it's weird and interesting and strange. And that's all things I like. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, what about you, listener? How did you find Tokyo Drifter? You can let us know at GoodTrashGenreCast at gmail.com. That's the name of this show, GoodTrashGenreCast at gmail.com. Hit us with that long-form feedback. It can be about Tokyo Drifter and why we're wrong about it, or right about it, or any other number of gangster films or Japanese films you want to talk to us about. GoodTrashGenreCast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. If you're looking for us on social media, that's where we're most active. It's at GoodTrashMedia on Twitter. Uh, it's links to the episodes of this show other shows in our orbit uh cool articles we find um we're an okay follow you know it, it's a website completely on fire right now do not like the new interface stuff the the views makes everything look ugly uh, but it's at good trash media we're still on there uh and last but certainly not least if you want to help keep the lights on uh it's patreon.com forward slash gdm you can find out what's in it for you over there lots of fun 
goodies and bonuses and perks. Uh, but, uh, you know, this, this is an operation without commercials, and we like it that way. So, uh, uh, you know, help the lights on. It, it's uh, it's not a lot, and uh, we don't we, we don't uh, ask much uh, of you. You can, you can give as little or as much as you want, but there's some pretty cool perks in there, I, I think. Good trash. I'm sorry. <laughs> Patreon.com forward slash GTM. That's what that is. Arthur. This anti-trash crime marathon continues, right? It it does uh, for a couple more weeks. Uh, and next week, we take to the streets of Berlin in search of a child murderer when we visit Fritz Lang's classic, M. Very cool, very cool. Peter Lorre. It wasn't me, Rick. It wasn't me. <laughs> Tune in to hear our thoughts on this. Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this this is, is why he's hiding. He's in Casablanca. Yeah. I, I don't think that's how this movie ends. I don't think he... We don't know. Uh, we don't know. But I think we know. But we'll see. We'll talk about that when we get to us. To so you keep, we'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. I'm not sure.